Geek Shock. Geek Shock. Well, I was talking to Torgo. Like Jeff saw me a couple years ago. Uh, I haven't seen Kay or Andy and since I left Vegas, really, and uh, I've really seen Todd since then. So, but I listen to you guys once a week, and it's like it's like I'm right there on the couch yelling at you, and you're just not paying attention to me. Um, <laughs> so, so just like if you were actually in the room with him. So yeah, right? I, I, not not I much has changed. Actually there. Yeah, but I feel like I've just been stalking you for so long now and now i get to i'm invited <laughs> back in like a vampire once you invite me in you're powerless against me yeah sure we're like a week a week away from the bunny boiling in the pot yeah <laughs> welcome folks to geek shock number 574 i am master torgo 80s jeff commander k track check dandy and just michael there oh my go. goodness do you just hear that michael. voice what? Yeah, Where did you come oh. from? Yeah, all the way from Texas. I uh, connected my magical horn Ooh. to uh, communicate over the distances. As long as it's uh, not the horn of Gondor. I think someone did some weird Ouija thing to get me in here. For those uh, more uh, modern listeners of Geek Shock, Just Michael is part of our earliest of incarnations. He was part of the Ugly Couch Show itself and then Geek Shock once we transitioned to more of an audio show than a visual one. So uh, you uh, you moved to Texas two two years ago or was it longer than uh, that? Yeah, it seemed like I followed Barry out here. I moved to Texas. It was 2013. Oh, so I was going to say it's it's at least six years, if not seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was, I, it, it's been a while. I keep meaning to go back to Vegas, but every time I make a plan for it, uh, a natural disaster or something happens. So sorry about right, the uh, right. sorry about the Rona. That was that was my bad. I was thinking about going to Vegas. Dude, you're in Texas. You're always going to have a natural disaster. Uh, I yeah, mean, we call it Barry. <laughs> <laughs> they I always it, thought uh, Texas was a natural disaster. Exactly. So, so what have you been doing with yourself, Mike? Oh, gosh. Uh, I've explored many different avenues and found my dream job of being a projectionist at a movie theater. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was fantastic until Rona happened and shut down all the theaters. And now I'm I'm not doing that. But I'll tell you, um, during during Rona, Barry bugged me enough to be a paid DM using my regular D&D skills. So now I play Dungeons and Dragons online for a bunch of 10 year olds. Uh, as their DM, and uh, wow. made to do that. <coughs> Kirsten. <coughs> <laughs> uh, no, that, wow, that's a very be, sorry, good to, impression, Jeff. So, so, sorry, I must be allergic to something in my house here. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like it's D&D and B. Dungeons and Dragons and babysitting. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> what it is. It's, it's really just I babysit for about four hours, uh, get the kids out of the parents' hair for a little while. Is it just the one gig? Uh, I run four games a week. Well, no, three games a week. And then the kids, I, uh, because they're back to school right now, I do like once a month. Wow. I'm trying to not put any more online games in my, in my basket. And four games a week is about where I want to be with like an extra party game here and there. I think that'd be fantastic. But I'm trying to, trying to find that, that good fourth gig that's not the kids. 
Because as much I as did. I love playing D and D, playing it with a bunch of ten year olds is is uh, something else. Well, I think that'd be exhausting. Yeah. Is it four separate groups? Um, yes, I have a group uh, that is basically just two guys. Um, one guy's in Vietnam, the other guy's in Japan. They're they're uh, they're Americans. I run for them. We just moved our game to late Saturday night. That's Sunday afternoon for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I run a game that is uh, Wednesday night. That's Curse of Strahd. <laughs> that's fun because I just I I play Strahd, which basically you get to bully your characters the whole time. So I enjoy that. And then on Thursdays, Thursdays is my regular game group that I had before. So they're not uh, they're not uh, paying customers. We run a little space campaign playing D&D oh, okay. in space. That answers my other question, which was, uh, do you have them all in the same setting? But no. Yeah, everyone's everyone's doing something different. The kids I have running through Out of the Abyss, which is interesting because I thought that would be kid-friendly, but I do have to edit some stuff out. I don't want to get, you know, give the kids the madness of alcoholism or anything. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like putting them through that. But uh, I have the kids going through Out of the Abyss. I do Curse of Strahd. I do uh, the guys uh, in the uh, overseas game. They're doing the Mythic Odyssey of Theros. And I have them going through the Underworld right now. Then the space game is just kind of something I've cobbled together from old Spelljammer rules. And yeah, I just really had the urge to do Star Trek and Cowboy Bebop and stuff like that. So um, Mm. I was like, let's go to space. And they're 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 having a ball with it. I'm having a good time with it. And it's important to to have fun. So that's what I've been doing. Nice, man. How do your players actually feel about it? Because I've actually run across some people who have a bit of contempt for the paid DM thing. You know, they're like, I'll never charge anyone to DM them. And I was just wondering, how do they feel about it? I mean, obviously they're paying for it, but still. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, I'm one of the people who is who am like, there's there's no reason I should get paid to the DM because I feel I I want to be an ambassador to D and D. Like anyone can do it. Anyone can be a DM. You can just pick up the book and just start, you know, telling these stories and you know having fun with your friends and rolling dice. And I would like to interject here uh, with that anyone can DM thing and. <laughs> I posted well, I a few geek. I posted well. a few geek shocks ago of when I DM'd when I was ten. Not everyone can DM. <laughs> Not everyone can do it well, but anyone can. You know, especially if you're gonna like, you know, like I'm doing. I you know buy books. So as a paid DM, I have to do. I have to. I have to. I feel personally responsible to take extra steps to make sure they have a little extra fun. So I make sure I have. You know, I've worked on minis now. Everything's online right now, so I'm working on online minis. So they have visuals for their characters. I'm pu- I'm constantly going through the internet looking for art that I can uh, show my players and be like, this is what this looks like, and and give them handouts of of you know dungeon scenes and things to make it look good. I'm still looking for a good way to get roll twenty to to play good sound because I don't like their audio player right now, but. I do sound effects through Discord, and I run it through uh, one of the Discord bots that I put on there. Nice, you got a nice yeah. setup for this thing. I feel like if you put in the extra work, it's gonna it's gonna be worthwhile for the uh, uh, for the group. And the comments that I get back from them are are that it's worthwhile. 
you know, they, they enjoy it and they're happy to come back every week. I did have a group early on that were, were a bunch of like, uh, white claw drinking bros. And I think they're <laughs> looking for something to do early on in, uh, in quarantine. And they pretty much had like one game with me and gave me a lot of positive comments, but then never came back. I don't know if they decided to do it on their own. If they did, good. I hope I hope they do well. Alternatively, like one of the things that I do is I have uh, one of the guys from my group, from one of my uh, regular groups, he's constantly calling me up and be like, hey, I'm running a D&D game and asking me for advice. And I'm, you know, so I'm shelling that out as well. So I'm kind of selling the experience as well. I mean, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons and studying it for 25 years now so i feel like that's got to be worth something right and i would uh, think so try to bring that value to the uh to my experience to the to the game so so far i don't have uh, anyone actively complain i don't think i've ever played D with you so i don't know how you are but i assume you're pretty good we played a game with kirsten we were doing some real uh i don't know there was just kind of loose rules yeah i, I cast Oh, we did the we did some of the fifth edition playtesting too. Yeah, the D&D oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I cast light on my junk, and you drew it, and it was interesting. Okay, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, yeah, that was an interesting sketch. If you ever wanted to know what the perspective of light coming from your mid region is, Andy got has you covered. Right. <laughs> He's a niche market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, if anyone says to me that, hey, I don't think it's worth, I, I totally agree with them. You're absolutely right. Yeah, if you want to run D&D, do it. And, you know, if you're looking for a player, I'd love to play in your game, too. So, you know, and, and then, then they'll back off. They're like, oh, well, I'm not ready to run D&D. <laughs> so, uh, you, you but you yeah, hire Barry. Uh, yeah, I could. I could. I've, I've actually been, uh, talking with Barry and I want to get person involved. I'd like to do like a DMs game where we can get a few D- DMs together just to run like a, a regular kind of relief game and just we all kind of pitch together and have one person run for the week or whatever. That'd I think that's fine. fine. Yeah. Alright, like going it. to a little bit of show notes. The uh, book club has chosen Heroin Complex by Sarah Kuhn. That's heroin spelled H-E-R-O-I-N-E. And uh, we will be opening up discussions on the Facebook page on the 8th. Oh, and I do want to pull out that I did throw a few more. If you're into old school D&D, I did throw some more old modules up on my eBay shop. Uh, So if you want the old school stuff, you might want to take a look. I put a link up on the Monkeys, Shock Monkeys page. But you can also just look it up by uh, the shop's name is Ugly Couch Show. One word. But that being said, gentlemen... What geeky things did you do this week? And I am going to throw it to our guest first. Michael, what geeky things did you do? I feel like I just spent a lot of time talking about it. I played Dungeons and Dragons. I, uh, <laughs> I, got, to, uh, I got my uh, characters in uh, my Theros game to uh, enter some weird puzzles at, at the base of, uh, of the palace of uh, Erebos. He's basically Theros' version of Hades. Uh, so they're stuck in the underworld and they're trying to get out. And I just have them going mad going through these puzzle rooms and I'm having an absolute blast doing it. <laughs> it, it it's funny because I have them doing this one puzzle right now. They're stuck at it. 
it's basically just a countdown clock. They can reset the clock and they just keep resetting the clock and they don't know that well all they gotta do is just let it run out. And I'm just having <laughs> a constantly. What if they constantly. listen to the show now? I do want them to get through it. So if they listen to the show, uh, then they have a hint. Uh, <laughs> it's a hint in Geek Shock number five seventy four. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. See, you could you could just keep it to yourself and then pad out your your time. So you know, see, you're you're <laughs> yeah. an ethical dungeon master. <laughs> like Kirsten says, like you've got to make it worthwhile. You know, if if uh, if you just get them stuck in a room and then laugh at them the whole time. They're That's gonna eventually style. get up then. Like, I'm not. See, this is this is why you stopped at ten years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I I like the phrase "ethical dungeon master" as kind of a self help book. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah, but it, it, it does it does it uh, come from D and D or is it coming from the S and M community? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you do hire me to be. Uh, your next DM, uh, you you know what you're getting. You're you're getting one room that lasts an hour that I just laugh at you. That's <laughs> bonus points if your character is some sort of mechanical man. That's that's all Todd wants to see is the mechanical men winning. Sure, and and if you punch your friends uh, or if your character punches another character uh, out of nowhere, then yeah, bonus experience points. Andy, what did you do this week? I had the Netflix equivalent of finding a $20 bill in a jacket I haven't worn in a while. I realized, oh. I, realized I hadn't watched the last half of the last season of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh. Told oh, you. That. Oh, man, that was good. God, it was good. That last season is amazing, isn't it? It really is. And it, what's kind of amazing, I realized afterwards, is that they really wrote it to end at season five. They They... Gave themselves an out at the end of season five. They could have just stopped there, and and they still managed to do two more seasons and made logical reasons for things. I guess I'm not trying to think if it's a spoiler or not. No, because if you watch season five, I mean, um, Coulson is very much going to die at the end of season five, and they find two more seasons worth of Coulson. I I loved the theming in that final season too. That each episode. Had, you know, you start off with very noir, and you roll into seventies and eighties themed episodes. I just, yeah. it was so well done and shot very much in the way of the decade that they were trying to, right. to emulate. So pre Wandavision, then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I also like them saving a character that disappeared because their show disappeared. Right. Uh, that and I, well, of course, I watch Wandavision, but I guess you can't really talk too much about that. Except that, just like the rest of the internet, I really want to see the uh, Agent Wu and um, what's her name, Lewis. Monica Rambeau. The, no, no, the the Wu and Lewis uh, X Files. Oh, type. okay. Yeah, so she's a full on doctor now too. Right, right. Yeah, that was one I totally didn't hear any rumors about until you saw her. I was like, that's awesome. And that show's becoming John, more and more compelling by the episode, isn't it? But right. I, and I, I never had a problem with it. I, I, from the get-go, I was like, this is interesting. And I, I know it's going to be a slow burn, but the burn broke. It, it's flying now. John Bean and Hayes sent me some uh, uh, escape room-type games that are basically... Oh, like escape room in a box kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Tried is the it first just one a big the... box, Andy? Yes. It's just a big box, yeah. and you walk, you, you climb <laughs> to it. Yeah. Have, find your way out of the cardboard box. 
<laughs> hey, that's a game I don't totally play right now. I'd probably just take a nap in the cardboard box, though. The game is called Unlocked. Well, the series is called Unlocked, and I was playing the Night of the Boogeyman, and uh, I failed miserably. But I'm, I'm kind of taking this as a uh, shakedown cruise so I can find a, figure out how the game works and how uh, you know what, what kind of things I should be looking for. But yeah, I, I did not win. Uh, the child is haunted by Boogeyman forever because of me. Ah, poor kid. Shame on you. Yeah. Do better. Hashtag be uh, better. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I've got two more escape room games to play, so we'll see. Uh, Do you know the other two titles offhand? No, they're they're both from the same unlocked thing, and I know that one of their 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 difficulty is one, two, or three, and the one I lost horribly was a one. I have one more one and one two to go through, so we'll see. Fantastic. All right, Jeff, what did you do? I saw uh, the pilot episode of a really brilliant series on sci-fi called Resident Alien. I know we've talked about it uh, on the show before, but it finally premiered uh, over the weekend. I just got to say, that that show is brilliant. Uh, If they can keep the air that they developed in that first episode going throughout the series... It's going to be a really good series. And Alan Tudyk is just amazing in it. Alan Tudyk plays a, a an alien who is stranded on planet Earth. And he's hiding out in a small town and winds up becoming a doctor for this town. Hence the title, Resident Alien. And then uh, it's essentially being billed as a the first season as a, uh, a murder mystery throughout the first season. And uh, the, the murder that he investigates happens in the first episode. So... If they can keep that that air of comedy as well as serious and even a little bit of a creepy vibe going, I think it's going to be a great series. Fantastic. Glowing review for that. I'm glad to hear that because obviously Tudyuk can do no wrong. No. Seems like it. But Sci-Fi the Channel can. So Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it is uh, out of the gate a very, very interesting show. I mean, so was Happy, too, and Sci-Fi canceled it after two seasons, so wouldn't surprise me if they uh, they do the same here, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. All right. Also, Babylon 5 Remastered did drop on uh, on HBO Max, and I've been kind of watching that. I mostly started watching it just to see how the remastering went. It's it's really interesting. It's not a full-on remaster like you got with, uh, with like Next Generation, because they did a lot of what Next Gen did was doing video compositing for their special effects. So you have certain scenes where they go from these brilliant scanned uh, 4K scans of the original 35mm prints to an upscaled, a very clearly upscaled 480p signal so that they could keep the, the special effects as they appeared on the episode. But overall, it's uh, it's 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 a much better quality than anything I've seen on either DVD or or streaming up to this point. Hmm. Although they, that first season, I I always remembered it being not the greatest. I'd forgotten exactly how clunky that first season was. So oh, even worse than you thought. Uh, I yeah, because it's been a long time since I've watched that first season. Because that first season premiered in 1993, so 20s almost 28 years ago now. But I do remember it picked up a bit after season two, and you know they, ha- they have cast changes in season two that definitely made for some interesting changes, both story-wise and thematically. 
so those those are the two main things I did this week. Solid. How about you, Kay? What did you do? I guess the thing that I would remark on is uh, there's this guy, Cinema Tyler, I believe is the, the correct name on the YouTube channel. And he does, he does these rather in-depth uh, researches into making of movies. And he's doing this, uh, this one on Apocalypse Now right now. Ooh. So I've been I, I haven't watched it in order. I'm just jumping around. But I watched the episode where he talks about the very beginning and the opening of the movie and uh, what went on in there. He took a lot of information from Hearts of Darkness documentary Coppola's wife's diary that she kept while they were filming uh, and Ooh. also a lot of interview material. And he'll even reference television interviews. Like when he uh, is doing the his episode where he talks about Harvey Keitel being fired, he actually cuts to Keitel being interviewed decades later about it, and you know how he's he's not bitter or angry about it. He's um, he actually called it a learning experience. That episode was really informative because the 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 Keitel thing was a lot bigger than I thought. I think that's the real interesting thing that I've done. I've been doing this week is watching. I've been watching the usual World War II week by week stuff. A, a few movies I've rewatched Casablanca because I think every now and then you just gotta rewatch that because that is still just one of the best movies ever. Really yep. is. I also uh, went ahead and splurged and rented a movie streaming and. Uh, my quarantine brain is uh, blocking on what the hell I watched. I'll shout it out uh, <laughs> a little later. I watched when... um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance the other day, which I yeah. don't think I've ever actually seen all the way through. And I, and I, I thought of you and I watched it. That one, it, it's, you know, that one too, Andy, it's funny because uh, you really got to watch it all the way through because it, it, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, let's say, lore about the story of that movie, but I don't think people really talk about the movie in its fullness mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, it made his political career. It really sent him off and what it did to what it did to John Wayne's character and stuff like that. So it's sort of it's actually even bigger and more complicated than you would think or that, you know, people talking about the movie actually kind of give it credit for, I'd say. Oh, it's also Liberty Valance is interesting because of the whole John Wayne aspect to it. Because I'm actually, um, there's also a, a film critic dude, Lundum C. Uh, he, or Landum C. He actually will review classics. And he'll, he'll talk about a lot of John Wayne movies in particular. And I've watched a few of those where he talks about you know, Sons of Katie Elder and the Rio Bravo movies and stuff like that. Although the really interesting one I saw just today, Andy, I thought of you, you would have liked it because he talked about Kelly's Heroes. Yes. And it was really funny because watching that and hearing that it was also inspired by a true story kind of right. like blew my mind. And it's actually, it's funny. It's I'm actually having a hard time getting a real detailed uh, account of the true story it's based on. But apparently there were some SS 
officers and, uh, and American army officers who did in fact do something of a gold heist. They collaborated and did a gold heist towards the end of the war. And there's so many Nazi gold stories that Google kind of gets choked with, uh, with various other ones while I'm trying to figure out this, uh, you know, that particular story. So that work that I knocked loose the, the, the loose nugget of your brain that was trying to remember what movie you watched? No. Damn it. Going back to what you were saying about cinema, Tyler, I've watched quite a bit of him as well. Uh, yeah. Focusing more on, he, he really does a lot of Kubrick. It, it, that's where he concentrates. Yes. yes. Uh, and I've done, he's got a really big set on concentrating on various parts of Full Metal Jacket that I've found mm-hmm. very, very interesting as well. I saw that. I'm sort of like, I'm sort of like, I think I want to, I think I want to get into there. But, um, you know, uh, as soon as I'm and, you know, he's actually in the middle of things. That's the other thing. He's in the middle of like doing the the uh, apocalypse now, which I was disappointed because I was all set to binge that, you know, start to finish. And then, uh, oh, he's only got seven episodes and he's <laughs> barely gotten to when they hit the river. You know, <laughs> he hasn't he's... even done the ride of the Valkyries bit yet. Wow. He is super thorough, so if you like Kubrick, yes. definitely check out Cinema Tyler yeah. on YouTube. And, and it's not to super intimidate you, because it's not like he's, you know, each episode is an hour, hour and a half. They're shorter. It's cool, though. It's really cool and well-researched. So so I've been doing stuff like that, a lot of, a lot of making of movie thingies like that, plus that other thing that eventually I'll, I'll remember. Guys, guess what I did this week? Minecraft. Uh... <laughs> You're all wrong. It was pinball. Uh, I said pinball. I, I couldn't hear it because everyone pinball. else is louder. Oh. Oh. I, I see how it is. So, yes, more pinball. And I did it. I beat everybody on every single table. I claimed all of it back. All of it. Except for one. You just say one. that every week. I know it, and it's a new one every week. And so this week, I have to do a shout-out to Punch Clops, a.k.a. Aussie Matt, who absolutely devastated me on the uh, Theater of Magic table, a table which I oh, absolutely adore. That's a good table, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so good. It's really uh, but for those that are playing uh, pinball on PlayStation 4, I, I've started actually a little community uh, page on there. I just did it before I started the show. I threw out invites to everybody that I could think of. If I missed you, I'm sorry. Uh, the community is called Geek Shock Pinball. And so it's a place on the PS4 itself that everybody can throw up their goodies and brag or or whatever and, and let me know when they beat stuff because you're very good at letting me know when I've been beaten. But I claim I got the Jaws table back. I got it all except Theater of so- Magic. So you're saying the Torgo bowed his head because he knew that he'd been beat? Oh, it's it's not over, but I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, that that is a, a solid score, Aussie Matt. So, kudos to you, sir. Love uh, that game. The, the Theater of Magic game has been broken at the uh, Pinball Hall of Fame for years now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. I check every time I go in; it's still out of order. Uh, boo. Well, hopefully when they got the new place up, it'll be up and running again. I have a feeling that weird spinning cube in the middle of it is is complex and that causes them trouble. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. 
that is a very complex machine. Mm-hmm. Speaking uh, of, and they did a really good job of translating that table. Speaking of Pinball Hall of Fame, um, they're up to ninety-seven thousand of the uh, twenty, the two hundred thousand goal. So almost halfway there. All right. So they still need help. So if you can help them out, I think okay. it's on GoFundMe. Is that correct, Jeff? Yes. So please, please do help them out if you can. They are a jewel of Las Vegas. And I also have, want to throw out another thank you um, uh, to Jake, our, our very own special Jake. Uh, helped me get some uh, CBS All Access this week so I could watch The Stand. Ooh. Nice. There you go. So I, I binged over two days, and I am caught up to as far as they have released. So seven episodes thus far, I think, of ten uh, they will be doing for Stephen King's The Stand. And I'm of mixed feelings about it. Uh, there are things about it that I really like, and there are things about it that I don't. Uh, one of the things that I have an issue with is, well, first off, i got to lay it all on the line. Uh, kudos for the attempt, because The Stand is a massive tome. It, if you do the uncut version, it is the longest Stephen King book ever. It beats right. it by like 200 pages. Beats what? Stop it. Stop what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, girl. So to translate that even into a 10-hour miniseries, I mean, when they did the miniseries in the 90s, it was what, three hours when you take out commercials? I, so, think, so. I think so. So that that itself was stripped down, but they've incorporated a lot more of the book back into the story, but they are definitely making cuts and changes. And of course, being in television, you have to do that anyway due to budgets or whatever. But one decision that they made that doesn't really work for me in this translation is they rely super heavily on the flashback. Like yeah. multiple flashbacks through every episode. Uh, going about to the halfway point, then they start telling a linear story and it gets better. I, I think it takes away from the character development. I think it takes away from the emotional punch. Uh, because you're not seeing these characters grow and learn as they go. You're seeing these characters as they exist in the Colorado community, and then it flashes back to the earlier part of the uh, uh, Captain Tripp's pandemic that uh, eliminates 99% of the world. And you, they've had, and due to time, I'm sure that's why they've had to skip over a lot of the getting to Colorado, dealing with the world after this uh, apocalyptic pandemic. Because of that, it feels rushed. You don't get to know these characters, so you don't form any kind of emotional attachment to much of it. Uh. They're telling the story, but I am, I'm not really connected to it. I do like some of the changes that they have done. Uh, I think the Nick Andros character, the, uh, the deaf mute character uh, is really good in this. Uh, the actors are doing really good with the characters that they've been given, the script that they've been given. They are not afraid to approach the gore in this show, and their depiction of Captain Trips and what it does on the body is pure body horror. It oh, is, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is amazing and dist- disturbing to watch in a proper Stephen King way. From your description, it sounds like they probably cut out the part of the book that sticks on my head the strongest, which is early on in a book, the scene where he's going through the Lincoln Tunnel. They did not do the Lincoln Tunnel scene, and it is uh, th- that is the one scene that everybody remembers from that book because it is so vividly painted. 
Yes. And I, I assume it's due to budget uh, because that they turn that into uh, going through a sewer instead. Uh, and, it's, and it's nowhere near the same. And No, but yeah. when you're in the tunnel, you've got dead bodies all around you. Yeah. yeah. I, again, I'm sure it's for budgetary reasons, but in my opinion, a huge miss in this. Uh, is it worthwhile? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I still don't know how it ends. Uh, I don't think that Randall Flagg has the gravitas that he should as far as the villain of the piece. Um, Randall Flagg is tough, dude. It's tough. They have a hard time nailing Randall Flagg in any, any cinema adaption they've tried. Yeah. And, and again, they, they get closer with this one, but doesn't quite hit it. But once they stop, telling the story with flashbacks and they start telling a linear story so you're seeing character progression and growth and their interaction with each other it starts to build that character you start to build connections with the characters and then and now i'm more on board than i was at the beginning Mm. so i I think i understand why they did what they did because they got 10 hours to fit this story in it it definitely hurts the storytelling i've been watching it i completely agree with you i think you really miss out on the getting to Colorado part of the the story. I think it's it feels like it's been really shortchanged where that's like a big a big portion of where all your character development comes from. It's got a few more episodes to go, so I will uh maybe a few more flashbacks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we might get some more character development uh coming through. Uh and that's just it. It's the 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 flashbacks are ours plot points and not so much character development so it's they're they're sacrificing a lot when i watched this last this last episode i uh i kind of was wondering i was curious like what's it going to be like at the end of it when you know it when people binge this is it going to play differently because i feel like uh if you were to watch this in a 10-hour setting you'd probably play a little bit better with the flashbacks and everything than it does episodically where you're just like waiting and waiting and you know you don't really get the instant gratification of knowing how you know that scene ends up yeah and i I have been binging it so i did the seven episodes over the course of two days so i think it was better having that and so these these next few weeks i'll be catching up as everyone else does i i will say that if you have read the book you are in a better position to watch this show. If you haven't read The Stand, and this is going to be your first look at it, I don't know how much you're going to connect to it. Mm. Uh, I haven't read The Stand. That book has always intimidated me. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and I think the fact that it's about a, a disease that ravages the world and scares people into hiding makes it very relatable for some reason. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine why. Me yeah, either. I don't know why. But uh, I knew of The Stand, of course, because my mom read Stephen King, and you know that giant book was always on the bookshelf, uh, scaring me away. And then I saw the miniseries way back in the day. So that's how I knew the story, was I just watched the miniseries. Okay, so you did go in, into this knowing the story. Yeah, I knew the story. So I, okay. I, I'm not uh, intimately aware of the story, as others would be, but I, I know the story. Um, now I did not watch the miniseries. Did they? How do they handle the uh, Lincoln Tunnel on that one? 
Oh, that was so I, long ago. I can't even remember. Yeah. I got a yeah. feeling they didn't do it either. I don't. I don't remember that being in the miniseries on ABC. So yeah, I don't. I don't think they did. Yeah. You know what? It may be that that filmmakers are just intimidated by the idea of doing a a whole segment that counts on darkness to be scary, um, yeah. because that's part of what makes the Lincoln Tunnel so damn scary. Is just. Uh, you you realize he's got to go through a couple miles of pure total dark in that yeah. wreckage, and and doesn't know what he's going to bump into in the dark. Yeah, or put his hand on right. as he's crawling around, and it goes poof and collapses under his hand. I remember that. I remember that page. <laughs> yeah. As, and when it ends, of course, I'll give my final assessment. But that's where I am right now. I. I like parts of it. It's it's acted well. Uh, I like all the actors in it, although it's kind of hard to not see Whoopi Goldberg as Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, she. It's not that she's doing bad in the part. She's doing a great job in the part. It's just she's Whoopi, and we all know her as Whoopi. Yeah. This is why you don't cast big-name stars in iconic roles, because you'll just see the star. It is but, kind of uh, to hear uh, F-bombs on CBS. It is kind of weird with this one, too. Uh, like like Star Trek, it has no problem being uh, being vulgar with the language. That's fine. Uh, but it does have pro- doesn't really show much in the way of the sex that's happening until at one point it's like, oh, yeah, here, it, it, we'll show some nudity now. And it's weird how it also <laughs> just makes that transition. Yeah, you're, well, it's very shocking when you do see it. It's, it's, it's holy crap, oh, I thought I was yeah. watching... CBS, this is HBO stuff. So CBS, I, I like that they're taking that chance and and uh, using the all access or soon to be Paramount Plus moniker to uh, break free of the traditional channel rules. Yeah. Well, they got to get those people that are in it just for the week to uh, to hang around. TNA still works. Yeah. Yeah. Oh Sex yeah. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, we've been uh, teasing emails for a while, so let's do a few emails here. First off is uh, one from Cthulhu Collector. It's a quick and to the point. It says, I do have a question for you fine gentlemen. Uh, who is your favorite minor character in any sci-fi or fantasy series? Mine is Zathras from Babylon 5. Cthulhu Collector. So, uh, thank you, Cthulhu Collector, for writing and then right to the point. So, gentlemen, favorite minor character in any sci-fi or fantasy series? What you got? Hmm. Let, let's start. Let's start with you, Jeff. You're human. Well, uh, <laughs> it, it, interesting that that was his choice for Babylon Five. I always thought the character of Zach Allen, played by Jeff Conaway, was my favorite minor character because he was kind of uh, Michael Garibaldi's uh, right hand man and security. And he was always listed as a guest star when he was on. I, I go back and forth. My, my, the, the two that I actually would say would be my favorite would be either Walter Harriman, who is the, uh, the sergeant on uh, uh, Stargate SG-1 that actually opened the gate for them. Because he always had like some minor exposition that would always set up what was going to happen in the episode. So I, I, I feel like he was critical to that. Wasn't he in like nearly every episode? Because yeah, of like 
I, if I remember correctly, he held the record for being in every episode but like two, I think it was. And then the other one was uh, Douglas Fargo, uh, the character on Eureka that was played by uh, Neil Grayson. Yeah. And I should I should go back. Gary Jones is the guy that played uh, Walter Harriman, Sergeant Walter Harriman on SG-1. But, uh, but yeah, Fargo, um, he more or less became part of the main cast later on, but because he was still considered to be kind of a side character, even though he would occasionally be critical to the different storylines, he also wasn't the star of the show, so he wasn't in, like, every episode. But he was the, the crossover character in Warehouse yes, 13. Yes, that is correct. He was. So, so how about you, Andy? Any character played by Mark Shepard. <laughs> okay. Do uh, you have a favorite I mean, of the Mark Shepherds? I mean, I mean uh, Badger from Firefly. But the most recent one is Willoughby uh, Kipling in Doom Patrol, which is basically right. I, I, the character was written to be John Constantine, and for some reason it couldn't use John Constantine. And this is this is in the comic. I looked this up because like that had to be John Constantine, and it was, but it it didn't end up being. So they created another character very similar to Constantine, and this is played by Shepard, who just every time he shows up on a sh- show, that episode is him. He's in Leverage, too, playing yes. Jim Sterling. Jim Sterling in Leverage. And he just, yeah, I mean, he's a amazing foil. And he's not this—he's not really the bad guy, usually, but he's definitely a foil for the main characters. It, it yeah. ups the level of anything he's in. I, I wonder why they weren't able to use him as, or weren't able to use Constantine on Doom Patrol, because that is also a, a Berlanti production, so... You would think it would have, huh? In I looked it up in in the comic. For some reason, when they when he when they used that character in a comic, there was Constantine was tied up in something, so they couldn't use him. So they created another character. I see. I I thought you meant on the show. So in the comic, it's oh okay. But yeah, it was definitely originally written to be Constantine, fairly obviously. Kirsten, who's your favorite minor character or characters in uh, books in fantasy? It's Marin Shedd, who appears in one book of the Black Company series and is this uh, nebbish guy who runs a tavern and begins this wonderfully documented descent into real depravity in the first half of the book. He just he just goes as low as you can go as a human being in this book. And then he, like, claws his way back up to some level of, slight level of redemption in the end. The, the whole book isn't about him. He actually vanishes for a bit in the third act. But then he comes back. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's not a perfect bit of writing, but it was, it, was just, it was just a hell of a character. And Glenn Cook did a wonderful job writing this guy. That and uh, I would say in comics, I'll just quickly throw out Delirium in the Sandman series. Nice. She was just wacky, weird. And, and the way they, the way they, way Gaiman wrote her and the way the artists drew her right down to the word balloons was awesome. I think, I think uh, Delirium taught me the word vitreous fluid. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, do you have a favorite? Uh, you know, when when uh, when the question was asked, I had to think like, who's favorite enough? 
but not a main character. Uh, it, it, my brain just kept going back to one guy that, like, whenever I knew he was going to be on the episode, it's the Smoking Man from uh, the uh, X-Files. Uh, when, when it was a Smoking Man episode, you're like, oh, shit, this is, you know, all the other episodes don't matter. This one, this one matters. <laughs> right. So, like, that is, like, the got to be the best walk-on, the best, you know, Whenever you knew, oh, the smoking man's in this one. This is this is going to have to do with uh, with with, with Mulder's past, or or there's something going on in the government. You know, it, it was uh, that's the one that had me really salivating. I've been binging SG One. I don't know why. I just ran out of stuff to watch. I guess. And Jeff, I just saw the episode where they're. I think they were doing a documentary. And uh, oh yeah. And he was like, sometimes I say something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Walter, he cracked me up yeah. that episode. Like, yeah, it was hilarious. Sometimes I'll say, incoming wormhole. <laughs> sometimes yeah. I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, Chevron 1 locked. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about binging SG-1 is, um, you know, they, they made a 22-episode sci-fi series, and you don't have to do that anymore. And I think it gives... I think it gives storytellers an easier way to tell their tell their stories by not forcing them to make 22 episodes. But those 22 episodes give you great opportunities for someone to walk on. Like, you know, uh, Mark Shepard was a great, great walk on when he was in Serenity that uh, mm-hmm. that character. Gosh, that was perfect. And then his supernatural character. Oh, I forgot. He's in that it. too. That's right. Yeah. Another favorite of mine is I can't I, I don't know the guy's name the swede from hell on, hell on wheels i've seen him and stuff is he's in stargate atlantis he was in an sg1 episode i think oh his character on hell on wheels was where i first met him and uh the wild stuff that he did in that was uh just so juicy so good and well at the time that he he i was watching him on stargate uh atlantis i also saw him on an episode of stargate sg1 yes is this a tie-in character? No, it's just, you know. Well, it, it doesn't hurt that he's Canadian, and so all those shows that get shot up in Canada, he's close by to yeah. to do a lot of those. So I only know him as the Swede, because that, that character, that part was so amazing. He plays a vampire in Van Helsing. God, he kills it in that role, too. He's, he's fantastic. <laughs> well, both of mine are from books. Uh, one of them arguably might not even be considered minor by some, but he only appears in the books in small bits, so I consider him minor. And that is a Zedekus Zul Zorander from the Sword of Truth series. I, I absolutely adore that uh, character. What a fun to, fun to say name. Right? Uh, he's, he's just that right amount of codger and wisdom that is just a joy to, to read. Um, Ooh, that sounds like me. No, nothing like no. you. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is from uh, Jonathan Mayberry's Joe Ledger series, Mr. Church. He's kind of the head of the clandestine organization that uh, Joe Ledger is a part of. And uh, anybody who's read that series knows that he's just a fun and intriguing and mysterious character. Uh, he appears in every book, but he is not certainly not the focal point. He's kind of the beginning and end point of every book. Joe Ledger fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. So, And if you haven't read the Joe Ledger series by Jonathan Mayberry, he's a good reason to get in there and read it, because it's good. 
So I hope that answers your question, uh, Cthulhu Collector. Uh, thank you for your patience in us ans- uh, answering it. I know it took a little while. And we're going on to uh, another email. Um, this one says, hi, guys. <laughs> it's been a while since I've written, but I always listen, even if only a week or two behind. I just want to thank you all for keeping this podcast going, especially over the last year. It's been a bright spot of my weeks, especially when I'd lost my job of 14 years and feeling really down. I knew that no matter what was going on in the world or with personal space, Geek Shock could make me smile and take my mind off things. It's great to hear the gang all back together, even if only virtually. Uh, With this, some changes in Washington, a vaccine, I think 2021 is looking up. So again, thank you for getting together each week and providing us with your great show. Sincerely, Evan Malik. P.S., Thanks, Jeff, as well, for suggesting the Welch's Mountain Berry to substitute for the discontinued Sobe for the Warp Core Breach drink. We're ah. about to make one now and toast you all. It's interesting he mentions that, too, because uh, I had a couple other people direct message me over both Facebook and Twitter in the last month asking about what would be a good uh, substitution for the Sobe. I, I will mention, if anybody is planning on making a Warp Core at home and, and wants to use that Welch's Mountain Berry... A little pinch of like citric acid will give that that little bit of tartness that the uh, mountain berry is missing versus the sobe. And also, if you're making a uh, warp core breach at home, don't plan on doing anything for the next 24 hours. Yeah, <laughs> important safety tip. One of the guys I used to bartend with uh, at at the experience, and not Darren, uh, guy Jim I used to bartend with, had a drink that he didn't have a name for that was. It was super strong, and like one day he eventually came up with a name for it, and we we're like, "Well, what are you going to call it?" He goes, "Don't make any fucking plans." And that was the name <laughs> of the drink. Uh, Jeff, are those uh, recipes still on the website? They are all of them. Uh, actually, not every single one. I would say the most popular drinks are on there. If there's a drink that you're looking for that you don't see, either write us comments at uglycouchshow.com or. You can leave a message in the monkey's lair and I will, uh, the shock monkey's lair, and I will put uh, the recipe up if I can either remember it or find the materials. Because right now, most of my uh, Star Trek experience stuff is in a, a box somewhere in storage in my house. <laughs> and just to make sure everybody's on board with what we're talking about, these are the drinks from the original Star Trek experience here in Las Vegas. Jeff was a bartender there. And so we have the recipes on the uglycouchshow.com website. So. Feel free to look at him there. Barry got, he still throws his uh, his pirate party, and he'll serve the uh, many of the drinks from uh, from the Star Trek experience. And I have had a, a fantastic time going to those parties and drinking those drinks. Sometimes too much of a fantastic time. Right. I'm amazed you remember they exist. Not the uh, drinks, the party afterwards. <laughs> the, the first party, I probably hit a little too hard, and uh, it was a fun night in Barry and Deb's bathroom. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun at all <laughs> I hear it's haunted uh, but I'm probably the one that haunted it I, I left some of my spirit behind Oh my <laughs> Hey Hey Are you puking? Hey <laughs> Hey Somewhere Barry is, is, is being furious right now And he doesn't know why <laughs> Becoming furious Excuse me uh, all right, gentlemen, that's it for emails for now. We have some more, but we've got some news to get to, so let's do some Week in Geek! 
Yay! Yay! Oh, good. That means no. That means me screaming hurt my voice. Yes. We thought we'd give you a week and and relax your your vocal cords and save Kirsten's ears. Ryan Coogler has inked a multi-year deal with Disney Television, and his pr- first project will be to develop a series about Wakanda, among several other TV efforts. Uh, hidden away from the rest of the world, deep within the African continent, Wakanda is the most technically advanced nation in the Marvel Universe Earth. The first Black Panther ended with King T'Challa and ending his homeland century-long policy of isolation by opening up to relations with other countries. Uh, while there's only one confirmed show at this time, the press release makes it clear that Coogler is free to develop other series outside the Marvel Studios sphere for other divisions of Disney as well. Uh, Coogler is currently writing the script for Black Panther 2. So, yes, gentlemen, we are getting Wakanda as a TV series, amongst nice. all the other Marvel joys. They keep telling me that I'm going to get sick of Marvel eventually. Maybe so, but that's nowhere close to happening yet. I know, right? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're pulling from some of the more creative corners of Marvel Universe. You know, it's not just one super group after another. They're doing other things as well. Yeah, I, I, uh, I noticed that Inhumans is available on some of my streaming stuff, and I haven't hunted that down, so. Maybe there is a limit, but we'll find out. (laughs) Considering we may not get an actual Marvel film this year with everything going on, uh, the TV shows are a wonderful distraction from that. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, the TV shows feel like they're part of the Marvel Universe. Uh, Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D., good on its own, but it was always just somewhat tangential and an afterthought. Whereas this with WandaVision, it's obvious that, oh, oh, shit, this is this is consequential. Yeah, Yeah. the Netflix Marvel stuff uh, definitely had the air of uh, its own thing. Yes, it was. It was a developed universe, but you're right. It's own universe and neither the twain shall meet. Right. And not not like it was a, a definite. This is definitely you know, separate and stuff like that because they made references to the movie stuff, but it just it just stayed in its own thing. Well, it was the street level heroes. It was uh, it was it wasn't the giant world. Uh, I mean stuff. beyond that, Andy. I mean beyond that. I mean in in just overall tone, feel, texture, everything about it. It felt right. like its own thing. It, it's not just the the thematic of the street level because we're gonna get some street level coming up here hbo max is reportedly in the early stages of developing a tv series based on jk rowling's harry potter novels according to the hollywood reporter however it's unclear if the show would be a direct adaptation of the seven original books or explore a different era of the wizarding world timeline the harry potter novels were already brought to the big screen in eight feature films that collectively brought in over seven billion dollars to the worldwide box office Uh, Warner Brothers is currently in the midst of rolling out a franchise of prequel films under the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them banner. So, HBO Max, if they do a Harry Potter series, whether they tell the story or not, it's not going to dwarf Netflix, but boy, is that going to give them a run for their money. Mm. Wonder what they are going to do. Because, frankly, TV series 
is is a would be a better medium for an adaption of the novels. Except that the kids will age. I mean, I mean, look at uh, Stranger Things. Those kids are shooting up in leaps and bounds between the series. Well, I think the movies themselves, the the each book happens in a year of Hogwarts. So right, yeah, the aging would be natural. Uh, But you're right, Kirsten. the, The there's so much more in the books than could make it to the screen. A TV series would be a a chance to give those books an even more robust telling of the story but mm-hmm. those movies are so iconic and the actors in it are so iconic it'd be like doing a star trek the next generation with the same characters but different actors mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't think the fans are ready for a, a reboot yet well yeah. you could have uh you could have uh what's his name play uh picard um shit <laughs> The, the guy was the guy was playing uh, um, Xavier McAvoy. in the movie. McAvoy. McAvoy. That's it. Well, James yeah. McAvoy has already told the producers of Picard that hey, like hey, if you ever need to do a flashback, I'm more than willing to play. Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you got to face it. Tom Hardy has aged out of that part. <laughs> Well, and he put on way too much muscle, but McAvoy's got a good amount of muscle on him now, too, so. True. That's what happens, you know? They hit their mid-20s, their necks thicken. Yeah, they can't pull off that, that Stuart Gravitas with that big <laughs> neck. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the neck, man. It's all in yeah. the neck. But look at the bright side. If they do a more thorough TV version, we might get that Hogwarts Lincoln Tunnel scene, finally. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe they'll do like a Star Trek, uh, Star Trek's animated show, and they'll just do like the the lower decks, but it's like the the less, you know, the, be the less interesting students. Wouldn't yeah, that be yeah, great? Yeah, there you go. There Seven you go. years of Hagrid and uh, the uh, the the Muggle guy. Mr. Filch? Yeah. Or, wait, I think Mr. Filch was the cat. I don't know. Right. I yeah. <laughs> we all know who I'm talking about. Yeah, but we know the guy. Barry right now like- yelling at the at the at the radio. I know he dragged Jeff and I through all of that Harry Potter land in uh, Universal Studios. We should know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do like your idea, Michael, though, of doing the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah, of Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be years. awesome. Seven years, thirteen episodes <laughs> a year. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, the, God. Yeah. yeah, That's exactly 100 episodes. Great for syndication. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Filch is the character. Mrs. Norris is the cat. There we go. Okay. Go with your gut, Michael. You know. I, I should have. I should have. You see, Barry's teachings paid off. What was going on in that haunted bathroom? <laughs> I was very drunk and I needed I needed uh, I needed help and uh, you know, Barry doesn't do anything for free. <laughs> that and probably the the constant "fuck you, Michael" from Barry was uh, was enough to make him want to separate, you know, himself from all that. Separate. That's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> Completely separate with a crowbar. <laughs> course we lost a few more people this week so we want to pay honor to them uh this week we lost dustin diamond 
uh, died yeah. at the age of 44. Uh, actor began acting at a young age, started his career in the film Big Top Pee-wee, and then went on to play his most famous role of Screech back in the series Good Morning, Miss Bliss, which then turned into the series Saved by the Bell. He went on to reprise that role in the series' follow-up shows and movies and made appearances in many other projects since. Uh, we also lost Oscar and Emmy Award-winning actress Cloris Leachman. Uh, oh, yeah. She was 94. She's best known for playing Landlady Phyllis in the CBS sitcom The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Leachman also appeared in several genre shows and films. In the Twilight Zone episode It's a Good Life. On the Star series American Gods, she portrayed Zoria Vitrinaya, I think. The eldest of a trio of sisters who watch over the constellations. Uh, Leachman played Frau Bruja in the classic 1974 <laughs> Mel Brooks comedy Young Frankenstein. She also appeared as Nurse Specs in the 2005 superhero high school comedy Sky High. Leachman also lent her voice to such animated films as Beavis and Butthead to America, The Iron Giant, Ponyo, The Croods, as well as The Croods, A New Age that recently came out. Her first credited television appearance was an episode of the Ford Theater Hour in 1948. And in 1971, wow. she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role of Ruth Popper in The Last Picture Show. Over the course of her career, she won one Daytime Emmy Award and eight Primetime Emmys, making her the most awarded actress in Emmy history, along with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. In 2011, she was also indu inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. When somebody reaches the age of 94, and if you look at her IMDb credit page, the sheer plethora of material she left behind, yeah, it's sad that she's gone, but it's, it's hard to mourn the loss because she already gave so much right up until the day she died. I mean, it's just, it, look at it, it. This is incredible. She has over 287 credits. On, on IMDb, just, you know, as a quick glance. So. I haven't had a chance to see American Gods yet, so I had no idea she was in that. That's great. So, yeah, we uh, we honor those we lost every week. <clears throat> Absolutely. Although, I have to say that uh, the Dustin Diamond thing, that last sex tape that he put out, <laughs> I mean, right on the hospital bed with all those tubes and stuff. It was just oh like, God, is it. really necessary. Wow. Dude, wow. Uh, on the day of. That's, wow. <laughs> wow. What are you doing, step nurse? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, you know, he's Duncan just going to peek at me from the kitchen. <laughs> Stay classy, Geek Shock. He is just going to milk that joke for the rest of the recordings. <laughs> the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. That's right, Jeb. I'm going to tell that joke 50 years from now. <laughs> no, I'm an Andy. <laughs> uh oh, yeah. <laughs> Step nurse. I can hardly wait till Andy talks about that step pizza delivery guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> this week. What are you doing, step manager? <laughs> <laughs> this week, a group of amateur investors, gamers, and internet trolls brought Wall Street to its knees with the GameStop fiasco you've probably heard about. A film is already in the works. <laughs> okay. 
MGM has acquired a proposal for a new book from New York Times bestselling author Ben Mesrick, uh, which is titled The Antisocial Network. Uh, Mesrick yeah. is the same author who wrote The Accidental Billionaires, The Founding of Facebook, A Tale of Sex, Money and Genius and Betrayal, which was adapted into the Academy Award winning The Social Network. The producer of The Social Network, uh, Michael DeLuca, De is also producing this new film project. Uh, the story will center on a group of, quote, ragtag investors from the Reddit page called Wall Street Bets who banded together to put the squeeze on at least two hedge funds that had bet that GameStop shares would fall. The hedge funds had been shorting GameStop's shares, betting that its stock was doomed to further decline. These amateur investors, led by the Reddit page, began pushing the other way, buying shares and stock options. That caused GameStop's market value to increase and rise over 1,700% since December. Between Tuesday and Wednesday, the market value rose over $10 billion, unquote. Yeah, it's still happening, but the movie is being written. Well, the book and the movie are being written. That's crazy. I think there's a lot of fallout to what's going on that we need to see before we're ready to wire to write the story and yeah, and, yeah, and film the movie. It's not done yet, you know. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's still happening. I uh, was I was impressed with the hypocrisy of all these hedge fund billionaires <laughs> to screaming about like it's like. How dare they manipulate the market? It's like it's almost like you can't do that. That's our job. Yeah, right. yeah. you're gonna make me second homeless. <laughs> it's astounding. It is absolutely astounding how upset those. And you know what? I don't know. I don't understand the market well enough. But is 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 the idea of like outlawing short selling really too much regulation or something? Because it really does sound like a perverse and nasty practice to begin with. Yeah. So it does. so much of the stock market is nasty and perverse. Okay. I, I just it's it's like the regulations we have really aren't forced or they're or rather enforced or they're selectively enforced. It goes with a lot of economists have been saying for years, at least ethical economists have been saying that the stock market is really easy to manipulate and it doesn't take a lot to do it and these Robin Hood investors proved it this last week mm-hmm. but they did it because they wanted to save something that they cared about in in many ways and also <laughs> well some of them I should say <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I, yeah I agree is yeah, there definitely a motivation for the masses they were sticking it in the eye of the asshole which you know right. uh, yeah. I'm not going to condemn them for that Stick it yeah, in the eye of the way. asshole. That's my favorite movie. I like part three best. <laughs> there's there's definitely some high stakes trolling going on here. Well, it is funny, too, because <laughs> like, you know, they said, well, if you want to be rich like me, all you got to do is invest and invest wisely. And it's like, OK, so let's do that. And they they do that. They manipulate the stock market. And then these billionaires that give those tips are all like, oh, shit, we shouldn't yes. have said anything. Guys, if you're worried about the hedge fund billionaires becoming poor, don't no. worry. Trickle down economy means they'll be rich before long. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> That's right. Just, well, I also <laughs> love how people, how they're apparently they're like saying, oh, God, we took such a massive hit. We're going to need a bailout. And oh, they $600 got it. will do it. Yeah. And it's funny because like the two that got hit hardest got bailouts 
from other hedge funds. And I'm like, I'm like, have you guys learned nothing? Yes. According to Nielsen, Wonder Woman 1984 attracted millions upon millions of audience members in its opening weekend and cemented itself as, quote, the biggest feature film in Nielsen's rankings history, unquote. What? The film was the first big budget project to test out Warner Brothers' new strategy of releasing films meant for the big screen to HBO Max. Nielsen hasn't always analyzed streaming metrics, which means there could potentially be bigger streaming film out there. But Wonder Woman's viewership performance had set a new benchmark for Nielsen's pool of online data. The milestone is 2.25 billion minutes, or 14.9 million complete plays, spent watching the movie between the week of December 21st and 27th. The movie nabbed more than 580 million more viewing minutes than Pixar's Soul, which also premiered on this stre- and streaming over the Christmas holiday weekend. Uh, per Warner Media, Warner, uh, Wonder Woman 84 was streamed by almost half of all HBO Max users across opening weekend in late December. In addition to subsequent audience survey, found that the comic book adaptation had the biggest debut of any SVOD, that's subscription video on demand, release in 2020. Uh, while the sequel left HBO Max last weekend, it's still playing in the theaters around the world. Uh, to date, Wonder Woman 1984 has made almost $150 million at the global box office. Uh, less than a year after its launch, HBO Max is already closing in on 140 million subscribers. That number is sure to grow with upcoming releases of Godzilla vs. Kong, Space Jam A New Legacy, The Suicide Squad, Dune, and Matrix 4 in the near future. So according well, to Nielsen, Wonder Woman 84, no movie has been streamed more. Mm. Crazy. <laughs> it, we definitely felt a hit in the theaters. I was working back at the theater uh, when it came out, and the sales were not what we were hoping they would be. I imagine they um, weren't, but at the same time, I can't say I'm surprised. Mike. Yeah, we're really going to have to change how uh, how we make deals with uh, the movie companies on, on these big tentpole movies. They're not going to, yeah. if they're not going to bring the people out. It's true. I mean, you guys take the hit on whatever gate you uh, settle for in anticipation yeah. of making money off of all those people coming in. Yeah. But if they ain't coming in. So so essentially, Michael, even with the corona restrictions that might be in place, like capacity and all that stuff, you guys didn't hit numbers that you uh, were looking at. We were we were we operated 50 percent capacity uh, here in Texas. And we didn't, yeah, we weren't hitting any of those anywhere close to those numbers for Wonder Woman. Uh, well, um, uh, little that's things bad for you, but encouraging at least to know that some Texans are taking the pandemic a little seriously. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's really weird me working for a movie house when I'm like constantly arguing like, no, we should stay home, and right, but you know gotta work little things would just came out with uh with denzel washington is pulling a big crowd and it's one of those things where i'm looking at a theater going well i wish this many people didn't show up <laughs> um and but that one did uh that one is released on hbo same day as well so i i think it's just that wonder woman had big draw it was the first one to do it i think um there was a lot of expectation 
that definitely had something to the draw to uh, to having people download it and stream it. That was the thing I did too. I watched the little things. Was that the movie you were trying to think of? Yep, that was it. Aha! And what's your thoughts? Denzel Washington, he kind of put on a clinic for a naturalistic performance because up against uh, Rami Malik and uh, Jared Leto, those two, they had good performances, but they were they were highly affected, especially Leto. Leto, you you know you see him. I liked him. Like I'm one of the few people who liked the whole Joker in Suicide Squad interpretation. And and let's say like the character he played in Blade Runner. But this guy was sort of on that line in terms of affectation. And it was really funny. Jared Leto looked different. But every time you see him on screen, you're still, this is Jared Leto looking different. So yeah. it was kind of tough. It was a good performance, and Rami Malek played a, uh, a a type of. I I I felt like he was shooting for a type of noir detective type of feel in a modern movie, but Denzel was Denzel, and he was just so relaxed and inhabited his character that. I, it made for me. It made a kind of awkward counterpoint to Malik and Leto, and also I can't get too deep into it because of spoilers. But at some point, when we have a spoiler-free discussion of this movie, I think there is a there is an el- element that you know I don't like the term problematic, but I think there's something to the plot that's a bit of a problem nowadays. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael knows what I'm talking about. So when you guys see it and we talk about it, actually, when you see it, I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. But overall, it's it's a well-shot movie. It's, you know, there are things about it that are really good. I, I enjoyed the movie overall. And Denzel, it, uh, I, 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 actually, it's been a while since I've enjoyed him this much. I'll say that. Jeff, I'll be interested when you see it to hear your opinion, because I really do think it's an element of style. I am not going to say that Leto and Malik were bad, right. but I think that their style, the approach they took to their characters was just, I mean, Denzel just took a different approach, like I said, naturalistic. And I think that they end up suffering in comparison because of that. Because I think in general, a naturalistic approach to something Versus a stylistic or affected approach, uh, when they come in head to head, the the stylistic will always suffer, just in terms of American tastes in acting and film. Fangoria, one of the most prominent horror magazines since the late 1970s, has launched an entertainment studio with the purpose of developing projects rooted in the worlds of film, television, and podcasting. The new endeavor will be managed by the production company Circle of Confusion. Uh, They are a production company involved with The Matrix, John Wick, and The Walking Dead. Quote, we're incredibly excited to bring a new chapter of our 40-plus-year-old brands to launch Fangoria Studios, 
with our partners at Circle of Confusion. As filmmakers ourselves, our commitment is to expand genre across the world. We want to share original stories with audiences both domestically and internationally, owners Tara Ansley and Abby Gold said in a statement. Uh, Ansley and Gold bought Fangoria last summer, announcing their attention to mine the publication's long-running IPs, as well as work with, quote, new and diverse creators. Uh, Phil Nobel Jr. and Meredith Borders continue to serve as the magazine's editor-in-chief and managing editor, respectively. So Fangoria is not the first time they've moved into making movies, but it looks like this is going to be a more expansive effort as far as actually having a studio instead of just licensing their name to horror movies that they choose. Has it been too long? Do people, I mean, does, does the, does the magazine still have the reverence that it had in the Uh, horror world? It does. I mean, Fangoria, I don't think really had a lot of, uh, influence to non-horror fans anyway it was just that gross magazine that was on the magazine rack by that sci-fi magazine they didn't read either (laughs) Uh, but to horror fans it's it's sacrosanct it's yeah uh, just like for horror readers uh, cemetery dance is sacrosanct so i i think if they're making their own movies now and from development to script to release and with podcasting and potentially television shows as well Yes, please do. I would, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being a collaborative endeavor with uh, Shudder as a their, the horror streaming service. I could see a Shudder launching out a few dollars to try to re- reel them in as an exclusive just for that Fangoria name to bring that much more horror fans to watch Shudder horror films because we got Fangoria. Not saying it's happening, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. That would be a great combination because Shudder... Shutter does some real interesting stuff, and they just need a little bit more interest. People need to be paying attention to it. They need to bring in a little bit more, and I think Fangoria does have that that attention. If it still does, if it still has that attention, then they can pull in, you know, take them over to that, take them to that next level. Yeah, uh, and Shutter as 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 a service is really starting to realize what they are besides just a horror streaming service because there's a bunch of those out there. Uh, they're just now the most recognizable one but now mm. that they have creep show that they have joe bob briggs and they have also been really focusing on finding good independent horror films and getting exclusivity on those and that th- those three things i think are really launching shutter in the eyes of horror fans everywhere I know that I've held on to them during the pandemic. I almost let go of them at one point, and they said, well, here's some free months. Stay with us. And I've stayed with them since. Uh, if for no other reason, uh, they keep re- releasing creep show stuff. Like they did a creep show Halloween special. They did a creep show Christmas special. And I so look forward to their second season. Creep show is one of the best anthology TV series ever put together ever since, uh, I'd say, Monsters and Amazing Stories. Boy, back in the bookstore days, I always used to love going into the, you know, the section where the magazines were and watching, especially throughout the 90s, as that that tiny little squared off area in the corner where the sci-fi and, you know, the and Fangoria magazines were would slowly expand and at one point took up a good third of that magazine rack prior to the the downfall of the uh, the bookstores. Kay, you and uh, Andy, you both worked in uh, comic book shops. Did you sell a lot of those through those stores? or We had a small selection of magazines, but not much. Very, very small. 
pretty much the same, yeah. Uh, but Fangoria was there because I used to I used to buy um, those magazines at my local bookstore until my comic book store back in Wichita started carrying uh, Starlog and Fangoria, and then I pretty much bought it exclusively there because I you know it's like I was already there buying my comic books anyway. So I don't know why I never subscribed. It just always seemed more convenient and. Maybe it was just an excuse to go to the comic book store and pick them up. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> now, the more I think, of it, I, I think we might have had maybe one or two issues of two or three books. I think it might have been that small. And also, Fangoria had the uh, Gore Zone name as well, uh, which is a sister magazine that they put out, which focused more on the uh, gory effects of horror films of the time. I could easily see them turning that into a film line of exploitation, heavy gore style, independent horror films to help separate that from their regular Fangoria line, which will probably be more heady and traditional horror films. In a first, the game MLB The Show 21 will be available on Xbox consoles when it launches on April 20th. Published by Sony Computer Entertainment, this marks the first time Sony has released a game on a platform outside its own system. MLB The Show 21 will feature cross-play and cross-platform progression, letting you continue your season regardless of the console you're playing on. Uh, Is this the game you play with with the fucked up characters? We yeah, this is the baseball the game where I create all the okay. checks. Okay. MLB The Show has been the baseball game for a good while. It's the only one that has the Major League Baseball license. So Xbox has been without a baseball game for a long time. And certainly not one that's more to the simulation heavy and also includes actual players. So, one, it's nice that Xbox has this. Uh, but more importantly... Sony's making games for other consoles now. Wow. And allowing cross-platform, which is not something that Sony usually allows. I'm sure because they developed it, they're a little more trusting with it. Hopefully they'll get onto some kind of Minecraft cross-platforming sometime soon. Sony, damn it. Yeah. But until right. That's stopping Todd. <laughs> it, it, it is one of the things that is hampering it. There's no doubt about it. I would rather be playing on that that console in a room where my wife isn't sleeping. (laughs) During last year's San Diego Comic-Con, G4 announced that they would be returning to television. Now the newly resurrected network is closing in on a launch date for later this year. G4 has confirmed that both Attack of the Show and X-Play will be coming back. Quote, We equate this as someone pushed a pause button on G4 a few years back, and we're just unpausing it, adds uh, producer Blair Herter. Continuing on, because it probably never should have gone away. The relaunch just made sense, and if it was going to come back, it really should be led by the people who know gaming and esports from the ground up, unquote. Uh, G4 veterans like former X-Play hosts Adam Sessler and Morgan Webb, as well as Kevin Pereira, Olivia Munn, Allison Hayslip, and Herder himself, will be back in some capacity as the network finds its footing across cable, social channels, Discord, and TikTok. So G4 is coming back. They are bringing back Attack of the Show, which was kind of a catch-all nerd news show 
which introduced new technology and just was kind of a fun, playful, quick little show. And X-Play was video game reviews and nothing else. Video game reviews and some not necessarily great skits about video games, but the reviews were great. They did the G4 um, Thanksgiving special this last year, I think. I think it was available on YouTube. It, it is or something I, I i watched it i enjoyed it and then it went away and i kind of forgot about it again I, I feel like they might be taking too much time between their stuff and getting it getting it going i don't know what's what's the hold up here um covid most likely oh, uh, apparently there's also been some also financial constraints pot some due to covid i'm sure some out of their control but trying to to get all of this squared away because they had planned on launching apparently earlier in this year, according to one of the articles I read, but now it's looking like it could be the spring. I watched that show as well. I think it's uh, it was a good proof of concept because it felt like G4, a G4 show. So I think it was one showing the fans of G4 that, yeah, we're still kind of the same doing the same kind of thing. We're not, all that change. We're not the all new G4. We're G4. And also, I think it was also proof of concept to show their investors that there's enough of an interest in this by how many people were watching it. Cause it aired on the sci-fi channel. Of course it aired on the G4 YouTube channel. I'm excited for this tentatively. I'm a f- fan of both X play and attack of the show. So just having those two back alone, make me happy. Right. Uh, it isn't interesting that they're doing a thing with their YouTube channel now because they're all go- are going to launch new shows as well. And they're going to try them out on their YouTube channel first and get public feedback as to mm. what the public think w- thinks works and doesn't and take that into consideration as to what shows will go forward beyond the classic shows. So if you want to see what they're experimenting with, uh, you can subscribe to their YouTube channel, and that should be starting shortly. But I am glad that my my biggest question is that, yes, it will actually be a channel on cable, as well as the more traditional online variants as well. Because when they did the announcement, no one knew, okay, G4 is coming back, but what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean when we're, we're not... We're not changing channels anymore. We're we're using everyone's streaming everything. So how do we get this thing right? And and is it going to be you're going to broadcast on Twitch? You're going to broadcast on TikTok? What what where are you expecting this to go? So it's nice to know they're actually implementing it as an actual channel of shows. Netflix has given the green light to Godzilla Singular Point, a new anime debuting in 2021. Not much is known about the plot, but the hand-drawn animation and CGI, and it's being produced by Bones and Orange, the Japanese anime houses that made My Hero Academia and the Beastars. Uh, the new anime will be directed by Atushi Takahashi, who did Blue Exorcist, uh-huh. with a new Godzilla design, courtesy of Studio Ghibli animator Iri Yamamori, who did Spirited Away. Also, Skull Island, an anime series based on Kong Skull Island and tied to the Legendary's growing MonsterVerse franchise, and a Tomb Raider anime are heading to the streaming service. 
Huh. Uh, Skull Island is described as, quote, a thrilling animated adventure series that follows shipwrecked characters desperate to escape the most dangerous place on Earth, unquote, and will be written and executive produced by Brian Duffield, uh, Austin-based powerhouse animation who created, who did the animation for the Castlevania uh, show for Netflix, will be doing animation. The Tomb Raider will follow, of course, Laura Croft to, quote, chart the globetrotting heroine's last greatest adventure, unquote. No animation studio has been announced, but Tasha Huro, who is doing The Witcher Blood Origin, has been announced as writer and executive producer for that series. So Netflix, with three Western animes coming to... I mean, they've already done Godzilla shows for Netflix, animated ones. Haven't seen any of them, so I don't know how good they are. Weird. Weird. Well, the, the the shows that I watched a few years ago was the whole people were out in space and returning to Earth after Godzilla had so destroyed it, humanity just left Earth. So it was bizarre that way. Okay. Oh, they should have used some camera in that one. Gamura. But he's the friend of the children. <laughs> and there are no children left. Godzilla killed them all. Oh, well, okay. Tied up that plot hole. EA is no longer the sole creator of Star Wars games. Ubisoft has teamed up with Lucasfilm Games to develop a, quote, story-driven open-world video game set in the Star Wars universe. In addition, the upcoming release marks the start of a, quote, long-term collaboration with Disney and Lucasfilm Games, according to the company's co-founder and CEO, uh, Viz Guillemot. Electronic Arts says that its partnership... Viz Guillemot. He's it's a French company. He's a French guy. Okay. I hey, finally I finally say a guy's <laughs> name right and you give me shit about that. Well, I, I, I didn't recognize it as a name. I was like, what the hell is he saying? <laughs> you having a stroke? Todd, you know that it's Andy's job to derail the show. This is true. This is very true. Sorry. That's good. Uh, Electronic Arts says its partnership with Lucasfilm Games is not over and are still making games under a multi-year agreement they signed back in the spring of 2013. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, EA, I can't say I've been real super happy with what they've done with the Star Wars license thus far. No. That last adventure game that they put out, uh, kind of a uh, Nathan Drake style of controls, it was was okay. I, I, I know it's gotten a lot of uh, love from a lot of reviewers uh, but I, I gave it a shot and I didn't even talk about it on the show because it just it just didn't strike me. I, th- I think I stopped playing after about five hours. Which one was that one? Fall in Order? Uh, is it? I don't know. I can't remember the name. Wow. <laughs> wow. That memorable, huh? There was a good story in it but once it started opening up the gameplay... I just the gameplay wasn't compelling enough for me to even continue the story, and I usually like the Nathan Drake style games. Right? Yeah, I remember. There yes. is a big part of uh, of me not buying those games just because they're EA and I don't want to give EA any money. Wow, I can understand that, and I can understand people feeling the same about Ubisoft. Frankly, that's true. Yeah, Ubisoft. dude, I, it, it's tough trying to get excited about buying video games lately because you're like oh that looks cool and interesting and then you find out all of the shit the employees are having to deal with you know the 
sexual harassment scandals, the low pay, the long hours, all that stuff. It makes me really not want to buy video games ever again. It's just, it's ridiculous. They've got a lot to correct, and unfortunately, it's slow in correction. I still don't know why they don't unionize, though. It makes no sense to me. They really should. I, I realize it's a, it's a very competitive field, and I think the people who run the game say, well, if people want to leave, there's plenty of people to fill their place for people who want to get into the industry. But yeah, if you go into that industry, you are breaking your back. You are giving up basically family for how many hours that you're putting in there. It's a job that becomes more than your life when you choose that industry. And there, there needs to be somebody on the side of the non-management in game creation that is doing something to protect those jobs, to, to protect the people in those jobs. People in those jobs, yeah. It, it would be one thing if those games just weren't profitable, but, I mean, they've had, they had record profits this last year. Yeah. Even they've with, had record profits for years upon yeah, years. Like six years straight, I think they've had record profits. And the actual average salary of the employees has remained about the same. And they're working more hours than they did five years ago. Especially when they get into crunch, which crunch is being used more and more to finish games instead of, you know, proper planning it out. It just... Not to mention some of the crap, the hostile work environments a lot of these employees are having to deal with. Not being able to afford food is the one that was killing me. I'm like, like you can't even... So they, they have a kitchen set up in the offices that's a for-profit kitchen, and the employees that work there can't afford to buy their own lunch there. They have to either bring lunch from home or skip it. I mean, that's stuff like that's just unacceptable in this modern day and age. Especially when, you know, the CEOs and shareholders are making money hand over fist on all of these games. The money that the video game industry makes dwarfs the film industry. And the film yeah. industry makes fucking bank. And that yeah. is unionized through and through. Exactly. Uh, but at some point, I'm not blaming the victim here, but in a way I am. When does the worker say enough's enough and unionizes? The, it's available to them. They just have to do it. You code yeah. six bit. What do you get? <laughs> A new study by Asmodee Games and Game in Lab have found that when used correctly, board games can improve the cognitive function and quality of life for Alzheimer's patients. The study is titled Cognitive Adaptation Behavior and was conducted by Julie Browse, Lori Champney, and Philip Robert. Uh, games in this fashion should be done in a regular basis, fit the patient's interest, and be adapted for accessibility like large fonts, ergonomic, etc. To achieve this, the study lasted over the course of a year and looked to and looked at the benefits of 20 patients, which, of course, is a small sample size, but it should help serve as a jumping point for researchers to dive deeper into potential in this area. Uh, Game in Lab will be sponsoring up to five research grants for more short-term projects, uh, short-term lasting 12 to 18 months. I do remember a while back when um, we were looking for a facility to help my mom. We were looking at uh, essentially what was adult daycare at the time because my dad was thinking that he could take care of her 
after he was done at work before that became unfeasible. But uh, board games was one of the activities that they had that they tried to do on a regular basis. And it said they they told me, and this is probably a good six, seven years ago, that it did seem to show some improvement with their patients. So it sounds like somebody's actually locked onto that and done an actual research study on it. I can't imagine trying to get my father to play a uh, board game. I just found out uh, yesterday, Tony Bennett, who's like 94 now, yeah. uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's like six years ago or something like that. So. Yeah. Since it was announced back in 2018, George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing is shooting in Australia. The production shoot for the fantasy film was further delayed because of the pandemic. While details of the plot remain murky, Deadline reports that Miller has described the movie as an anti-Mad Max. Uh, Meanwhile, Miller's producing partner, Doug Mitchell, described the sets, quote, as some of the most spectacular he's ever seen and noted that the story will, as the title suggests, take place over 3,000 years of history. Uh, 3,000 Years of Longing stars Tilda Swinton uh, from, she was in Doctor Strange, Ildris Elba from Thor and many others, and features many of Miller's Mad Max Fury Road collaborators, including Oscar-winning director of photography John Sale, uh, who also did Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, production is expected to wrap up uh, the, in early this uh, later this year, and the film is supposed to premiere sometime in September 2021. So George <laughs> Miller's next opus in, is happening. I don't know why I keep... You, you said anti-Mad Max, and I'm like, so what? Like... Uh, emotionally stable Max, uh, cognitively <laughs> uh, cognitively normal Max. <laughs> what, what emotionally stable Bernice. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to guess this has a positive spin. <laughs> <laughs> HBO Max has revealed that it's looking into international markets for the first time ever to produce new DC Comics-based content that will originate outside the U.S., but will ultimately end up as part of HBO Max's overall genre lineup across the globe. The idea is for HBO Max to tap into its its access to DC's library of genre titles by launching new projects in, quote, local production markets to assure that they have their best chance of finding an audience in their home countries while simultaneously aiming for international success. Quote, oh, man, it, I'm- I'm getting Japanese Japanese Spider-Man flashbacks. Yeah, so my quote, if there's anything that we're developing that has real cross-border appeal, we'll be able to highlight that, HBO content chief Casey Bloys said. So DC Comics originating in other countries, and if they're good, they'll they'll hit to HBO Max. Okay. Spoiler alert, they won't. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, this one, of course, Andy, you know this already. It's been nearly 40 years since The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across uh, the Eighth Dimension was released. And therefore, nearly 40 years since the film's promised sequel, in which the multi-talented hero would take on the World Crime League. Mm-hmm. The long-awaited follow-up is finally here in the form of a new prose novel from the film's original creator, Dark Horse uh, Dark Horse Publishing announced that this summer they will release Buckaroo Banzai Against the World Crime League at all, a compendium of evils, a story, quote, as told by the Reno Kid to Buckaroo Banzai creator E.M. Roush. That's the, the whole re- title. 
the Reno kid. That's interesting. Yeah. Because Reno is a character in the uh, original movie that never is actually in the movie. Ah. It's like a running gag. Uh, when Jeff Goldblum's character in New Jersey meets the uh, Hong Kong Cavaliers for the first time, he keeps saying, oh, I know all you guys. You're, 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 you're Pecos, right? Or is it Pecos or Reno? Maybe it's Pecos. Sorry, I'm very tired. I've been shoveling all day. Here's the official synopsis, quote, still mourning the losses of his beloved Penny Pretty and his surrogate father, Professor Hikita, Buckaroo Banzai must also contend with the constant threat of attack from his immortal nemesis, Hanoi Zan. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Hanoi Hanoi Zan. Okay. Ruthless leader of the World Crime League. To make it worse, Planet 10 warrior queen John Emdahl has sent her Lectroid legions across Earth with a brutal ultimatum. Or is her true target Buckaroo Banzai? As the apocalyptic threat continues to mount, only Buckaroo and his Hong Kong Cavaliers stand in the way of global destruction, or in the words of one of the movie's iconic lines, laugh while you can, monkey boy. Mm. I'll read it. I'll definitely read it. I'm very excited about it. I look forward to hearing your thoughts, sir. Yeah. I still have to see the first one before I read the second one. Right. Why? Why are you you hiding your head, Kay? Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, at this point, I I, I won't be too offended, but I'll be a little offended if I'm going to watch it with you. I I really want to see you see that the first time. I will save it for you. I will let you break my Buckaroo Bonsai Cherry. Andy, I think what you're getting confused with, I, I had to look it up too to make sure, but uh, there's the character Reno Nevada that's in the movie, but mm. there wasn't a Reno Kid character in okay. Buckaro Banzai. And, and I am confused, and it is Pecos that, that uh, Jeff Goldblum's character kept, uh, he keeps running into various members of the, well, not, I think it's a quick gag, but he, he turns to two or three people and says, oh, you're, you're Pecos right now. No, no, man, right Pecos is in Tibet or something like that. And and in the book, it points out that Pecos is a woman. So he doesn't know them that well. What well, do you know well? Write to us comments at uglycouchshow.com. And until next week, I am Master Torgo. 80s Jeff. Reno K. <laughs> Coming in from outer space. Fact check Andy. <laughs> and just my. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week in Geek. Uh, K, did you lose your. Uh... Your, your stuff again yeah. on your phone? <laughs> yeah, the power was dropping down again. I got to charge wow. the phone up before the cast because yes, you do. It, yeah. it just does it. It just won't last. <laughs> and neither does that microphone. Yeah. But yes, charging charging your phone prior to, that's a, a fine plan. A fine well, plan. Well, you know, I yeah, nap I before the podcast, so if I fall asleep while I'm reading, I can't charge unless I'm charging while I'm reading and then I'll leave it on too long. And Jeff will yell at me for letting it charge to 100% sitting there. Yeah. But, but if, if you don't, you sound like bowling for soup. Yeah. Well, at least I can get my sentences out. <laughs> How's that level? That level is juicy. Terrifying. I've oh, got really it's that guy. Hair. Okay. Yeah. Now you remember me. <laughs> oh. I managed to score uh, a four-pack of Dragon's Milk this week, so I'm pretty happy about that. You, I know you want me to ask, but that's not. is this something that should be don't on the show? It. Don't do it. It's a trap.
they keep the recording under two and a half hours, that'll get us uh, an hour and 40 minute show. All right. <laughs> so now you want us to just start talking naturally to each other uh, so that you can find a good segue into the show. And we're just going to sit here and awkwardly look wow. at each other. See, you remember how it works. Yeah, right. I remember. Michael. I remember. And he draws a lot from like Hearts of Darkness, the uh, the that great documentary. Hey, uh, come back, Todd! I I didn't realize you had the power to turn uh, microphones off. Good on you, man. That shows restraint on your part. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's going crazy. He doesn't know he's muted. <laughs> <laughs> hey, geeks! Do you does your butt actually itch after you go to bathroom? Well, don't worry anymore, because now there's Dude Wipes. Use Dude Wipes, flushable wet wipes, to just clear those last bitty bits that get in the way of a pleasurable sit-down after a pleasurable sit-down. Dude Wipes, made for dudes, in black packaging so everyone knows you're a badass with a clean ass. Dude Wipes. Are you getting sponsored? Uh, well, well, you know, I just left a little something for Todd there to discover. We'll see if he finds it. Oh, Andy's laughing. Look at Andy laugh. That's cute. We can't hear Andy because he's <laughs> muted. I have the power. <laughs> yeah, figured out how to un- unmute yourself there, did you? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're like, wow, he's so, he's so pissed he left the room. No, I went to pee like I said I was going to. But you also carried on a good 30-second conversation to no one before you <laughs> yes. went out the door. <laughs> I did realize that eventually. Yeah. You know, prior to even getting to Lake Me, plus the, it's now 20-year drought that we've had here in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. when I first Ice Bucket Challenge, we all know. Yeah. I mean, we discussed it right <laughs> on this show. That, Shut uh, your mouth! Shut what? your ignorant mouth! Ignorant mouth. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Yeah. I forgot yeah, that that's, I, that's the thing that set it off. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we never let uh, Maple Leaf Matt forget that he was uh, Satan. I just drove the girls to where they got the they got uh, fucked. I didn't actually <laughs> him. <but. laughs> what? All right, Andy, you, I'd say try that again, but probably you, you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, step pimp? oh god that's layers upon layers what the fuck that was uh that was matt by the way i i had to when i re-listened the show i we were so hot and heavy at that point i'd forgotten who actually said the line but that was matt that came up with step uh with uh step warden Mm-hmm. Uh, I, although I don't know if I like we were so hot and heavy. Are <laughs> <laughs> you ready to get back into this, gentlemen? I mean, we're, we've started talking about poop. I think it's the exact right time to get back into it. <laughs> right. And a haircut will change the effort. I'm not getting the haircut connection. Andy, I like how your hair has this natural Ronald McDonaldness about it. <laughs> if uh yeah no uh, in this climate and let my hair grow out i get a serious brady brady kid look <laughs> it's time to change you've <laughs> yeah, got to rearrange fantastic i went on a little uh king's island 
run on YouTube. I just for two hours, I'm just trying to find footage of Kings Island amusement park from the eighties. Mm-hmm. Did you and, watch the horrors of Kings Island one? Did you watch that one? Uh, I think I'd seen that one before, and and yeah, there, there's the, the few deaths that happened there. There's yeah. the the one day where they lost like three people died one day in two different spots. Really, that, had, that had some good footage from like the seventies and eighties. Yeah, that there's something that happened. I think in the 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 late eighties, there was a well, one a drunk person got onto this. It was a boring ride. I, I can't even remember the name of it. But uh, yeah, it, it had. It looked like spaceships, though. Yeah, it's. It was basically a very slow swing. Uh, these these pod these round pods on arms that would uh, raise up this large pole and then would go around in the circle like Dumbo, in a way. The Dumbo ride at Disneyland, except they were enclosed round pods, somewhat enclosed. And you could you had control over them, so you could like Dumbo the Dumbo ride. You can go up and down, but you could also spin it upside down. Yeah, you do barrel rolls. Right. So apparently, this they this is one of the reasons they don't sell alcohol there anymore. Uh, apparently, she was so drunk, and no one stopped her from getting on this thing, that once she was strapped in with the shoulder restraint, she passed out. Now, normally they weren't allowed to have. Uh, single riders, uh, but they let her ride by herself. So she passed out, and in doing so, she slumped down out of the restraint and hit the control lever that turns the thing upside down. So she fell out of the restraint, turned upside down, dumped out, and, uh, of course, she didn't make it to the hospital. On the other side of the park, happening at the same time, Two dudes, I think they were in their young 20s, thought it would be fun to hop into the uh, lake in the Oktoberfest area, which was just a shallow pond. Uh, One dude jumped in and all of a sudden just started jerking and it went still. Uh, His friend saw him in distress, jumped in and did the exact same thing. A security guard that saw it happen jumped in and the same thing happened to him. One of the uh, young guys survived. The other two died of electrocution. Yeah, there was an aerating pump that wasn't properly uh, secured with a circuit breaker. So it was literally electrifying the whole pond. And uh, that's what killed those guys. Wow. So Kings Island paid a not heavy enough fine and things went on and... But I was, I was trying to find out all this old footage, and of course, the final season of Brady Bunch famously filmed one of their episodes at Kings Island the same year that the Partridge family filmed one of their episodes at Kings Island because the production company that ran both of those shows also had a share of Kings Island. So they were in cross-advertising. Uh, uh, gotcha. Uh, I worked I work the uh, Six Flags, well, so that's it. I worked Riverside Park, but now it's Six Flags over in New England. Um, in 85, summer of 85. And that was just on the cusp of uh, automatic lap bars and stuff. I mean, there were uh, still many of the rides were just the ride operators had to strap you in. And they weren't those, they still weren't those secure straps. It was easy enough to yeah. get out of them if you wanted to. I remember one of the, the bumper cars that we had at, uh, I want to say it was at Joyland. Um, 
all it was was this little strap that was tied onto the the pole behind it and you basically it was a as a circle you put your arms through it and then it kind of essentially just lightly wrapped around your chest and that was your only restraint (laughs) and there were a few rides that had that kind of thing yeah i saw people put that around their neck oh jesus yeah Uh, a little a little side uh some of the brady kids almost died uh that day that they filmed in king's island i hadn't Mm -hmm. heard that no no yeah this uh this uh this was first uh reported in the growing up brady by uh, the guy that played Greg in his biography. Barry, the, um, anyway, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> Barry, Barry Williams. But, yes, uh, thank you. They were filmed with the kids and the family of riding the racers, which was a wooden roller coaster, still there, it's the wooden roller coaster, twin roller coaster, and they were already set up to film the, the shots of the camera on the front of the car pointed at the family, and that was going to capture their experiences as they're going up and down the hills. The actor that played the father said, that doesn't look quite safe to me. Why don't we send that on its own to see how it tracks? So they did. And they sent the uh, the camera equipment with no riders on the car all the way through. And when it came back, the equipment was gone. It had fallen off and fallen back into the cars that the kids would have been riding in if they had sent the kids on it. Wow. And that's, of course, hundreds of pounds of equipment traveling fast. So, yeah, so yeah that's uh, a father was a true father that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he never let him live it down. Remember that time I saved your life? <laughs> it's, it is funny with him, like how much he loathed that show and, and everything about the production, but loved those kids like they were his own. Yeah, he and Sherwood Schwartz, the creator of that series, oh, guy that also it, created Gilligan's but, Island. But it heads all the time. Yeah, he he, especially as the seasons went on and the the situations became dumber and dumber. Because uh, I mean, Reed was a uh, Shakespearean actor. He was he's up to, up to this point he was doing really serious stuff, and. But you're right. He he loved the kids so much, and he did do his best to improve on the script. So what we saw was actually better versions of what we would have gotten. And it is funny, like Sherwood Schwartz always managed to talk him back in for like all those reunion sh- movies, and then the uh, the uh, the Variety Hour and all that stuff. Oh yes. Uh, uh, this brings me to another topic, guys, that uh, I wanted to bring up. Um, who wants to start a Brady Bunch podcast with me? Seriously? Sure. No. Wow. <laughs> uh, I'm out. Uh, everyone else is being nice, Todd, but no, no one wants to do that. <laughs> I was this. I was just just kidding. That's that's right. I was, it was a joke, guys. It was just a joke. Just just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, I, I was just joking. Unless you want to. <laughs> 